Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Our guest this week is Jane Roper. Jane is the author of two previous books, a memoir, Double Time, and a novel, Eden Lake. Her short fiction, essays, and humor have appeared in publications including McSweeney's Internet Tendency, The Millions, The Rumpus Salon, and Poets and Writers, and on NPR. Her new novel, The Society of Shame, is available to order. the United States. Well, not so much if we look at the recent headlines. The country continues with its crackdown on autonomy, on what women want to do with their own bodies. A new report about some popular period tracking apps is raising privacy concerns. The apps collect and store some deeply personal information. And now a nonprofit is warning about potential privacy loopholes. Inside the house, she raced to the bathroom where she climbed up onto the toilet and peered over her shoulder to see herself in the mirror. And there it was. On the very bottom of the seat of her pale green capris was a circle of dark, ugly blood the size of a saucer. She sat down on the toilet and sobbed. This idea of purity and you're never compromised and you're always politically woke and all that stuff. You should get over that quickly. The world, the world is messy. There are ambiguities. Hi, my name is Jane Roper, and I believe that sometimes the best way to talk about serious issues is to laugh about them. Sorry, not sorry. Jane, welcome to Sorry, Not Sorry, and I am super excited about getting into your novel, The Society of Shame. But before we do, tell our readers a little bit about you and who you are. Sure. I am a writer. I'm also a copywriter and brand strategist. I got the day job going. I'm the author of two previous books, a novel called Eden Lake and a memoir called Double Time about my journey as a young mother of twins and my issues with mental health struggles during that time and how I made it through alive. (laughs) So I live in the Boston area now with my twins who are now 16 years old and awesome. Yeah, as you mentioned, your mother and your first book, Double Time, covers, what is it, like the first three years of raising twin girls? I can't even imagine. And in particular, you talk about being diagnosed with bipolar disorder during those years. And we are seeing in the news now stories about maternal mental health. I myself suffered with postpartum anxiety. Both how important is it and how much is it ignored? And I wonder if you have any reflections now that your daughters are teenagers. 
Sure. Yeah. And I should say, first of all, that while they started as daughters, one of them is genderqueer, goes by they, them now. So I'm, I've had to get myself in the habit of saying kids, not daughters. <laughs> Got it. Thank you. But yeah, I was very much aware of the issues of postpartum depression when I was first pregnant, even having suffered from depression before. I really ended up being fine throughout my pregnancy in the first year of my kids' lives. It was when, after I stopped breastfeeding them, that I had sort of a mental health and hormonal crash. Me too. It was 10 months after I gave birth and I went in, I had this crazy anxiety, debilitating. I was going into the hospital to try to get some relief. And my OBGYN was like, yeah, this is a big adjustment. You should take a hike. (laughs) I'm like, you think hiking is going to help this? That's like the people who say do yoga, you know. It's too far out. And I was like, but literally, I just stopped breastfeeding a month ago. And this corresponds with that. So how can you tell me it's not related? Yes, thank you. I'm really, I'm not glad to hear that, but this is something that I've written about too. This is not talked about a lot, but it absolutely does happen that people after they stop, after they wean, they have depression issues. And it makes total sense if you think about it, right? Because the hormones are changing. This is something I really wish people talked more about. So I'm glad you brought that up and shared that. I mean, especially because those happy hormones aren't being released anymore. And Milo, in my case, Milo, he didn't even wean himself. He just stopped. So I went from having all of those happy hormones to none of those happy hormones, and it really impacted my mental health. Yeah. Ugh, I'm sorry you went through that. It's the oxytocin, right? That bonding hormone that you release when you breastfeed. And yeah, it makes sense. It's like sudden withdrawal from that. Of course, you're going to have a reaction. My OBGYN was like, so sorry you're going through this. You should take a hike. Also, you're 39. If you're going to have another kid, we should start talking about that now. Oh, my goodness. I literally looked at her and I said, I don't even know if I want the kid I have. Do you understand what I'm saying to me right now? Of course, I was joking and trying to make light of the situation. There are people that really, truly feel that way. And if they are being dismissed like I was dismissed, I can't imagine. You wrote a really powerful essay titled That Time When My Daughter Had Cancer which you reflect both on the powerful and lingering effects of medical trauma, but also on the unexpected nostalgia that a medical procedure of yours inspired. Can you talk a bit about that? Because I think the sentiments that underline your essay are really important. Sure, yeah. So my daughter, Cleo, was diagnosed with pediatric leukemia when she was five years old, which is, of course, devastating, you know, nightmare for any parent. And we immediately, you know, once the sort of initial shock and terror wore off, we switched into mission mode, right? We knew we had to help her get better. We had to be there for her and be in on this treatment. And we had this real sense of just vital purpose. I'm a caregiver for my wife, Anita. I mean, a parent is already a caregiver. And the caregiver part has kind of increased quite a bit. You know, you're not taking on a new role to be a caregiver to a child with cancer. You're just taking on a heck of a lot more than you ever signed on when you signed on to become a parent. It basically says, you know, you're, you're there to support another person. We also met a lot of amazing people along the way on the whole journey through Cleo's treatment. 
So it was a really intense time. And while it was, even though there was so much pain, it was also a time when I think both my husband and I really grew as people. It really, I mean, nothing to put things in perspective, like having your child have a deadly illness and it makes you realize what really matters. It makes you grateful for the blessings that you have. It also, it was such a, it was a very tender time in a lot of ways. So while I obviously am glad that's over, there was a purity of purpose to it and a closeness in our family that I think was really powerful and important. So I think that's where the nostalgia comes in. And I feel conflicted about that because obviously like I, I don't want Cleo to be sick again and I'm really glad she's not. I don't know. I'm sure you've experienced this, right? Like even when bad things happen in your life, they often lead to growth. Yes. Most of my growth has happened after something that has been difficult. Yeah. So you kind of have to love the hard parts, even though they're horrific and you have to value what they gave to you. So I guess that's what that it's about, but it's complicated. So that's why it's nice to have an essay to play around with all those sort of weird, sticky emotions and feelings. Yeah, I feel like most of life is complicated, right? I think about not nearly probably as difficult as what you went through, especially coming out of dealing with postpartum depression. But I think about sometimes those early days of the pandemic in that way. And I think part of that is just the brain's ability to romanticize things to get through the trauma so that we're not stuck in the trauma. But I do feel like those early days where we were together as a family and homeschooling and being terrified together and trying to keep the house happy and joyful in the midst of a pandemic. I think it's a similar thing. About a decade ago, Neil Genslinger wrote what I think is a pretty mean-spirited article for the New York Times where he shamed memoirists for thinking that they had anything worthwhile to say. It was pretty hard-hitting. In particular, he wrote, they are lost in a sea of people you've never heard of writing uninterestingly about the unexceptional, apparently not realizing how commonplace their little wrinkle is or how many other people have already written about it. It's wild because when you think about creativity, when you think about writing, for me anyway, it is the little that makes up the big. And I think your memoir writing absolutely disproves what he said, that there can be real value and meaning in both the big and the extraordinary and in the mundane. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on both the work that goes into writing a good memoir and the value of memoir writing as a genre. Yeah, I mean, to the the first point about what this dude said, I think the very fact that people, ordinary people are writing about ordinary things, I think that's part of what makes memoir so powerful, right? When you read about folks who are suffering and learning and trying in their everyday lives, whether they're doing exceptional things or not, we're all united as human beings by those common things. So if I'm writing about my twins, or I'm writing about depression, or I'm writing about pediatric cancer, or anything else, 
someone might find a point of commonality in terms of the emotional journey that I'm going on, and that can help them feel less alone. I've certainly felt that reading other people's memoirs. For sure. And it's the connection. It's the connection that you make. And I think that's true with all art forms. It's the connection that you make with the person experiencing it is the beauty. And oftentimes those things are conversation starters. And like you said, a recognition of, wow, I'm not alone. Yeah. And that means a lot. I mean, that's why I read, right? I read to know I'm not alone. And if I read a memoir of someone, there's so many great ones out there. I don't know if you read Between Two Kingdoms. It's about journey through cancer. And then sort of, she had it as a very young woman. So she sort of was about to launch into the world, got this leukemia. And then all of a sudden after her treatment, she's 24 and thinking, what do I do now? Who am I now? And she goes on this journey and I'm nowhere near 24. And (laughs) I haven't been through that myself, but there was so much about human growth, about discovery. I could relate on every single level. And I think when you're writing memoir or personal essay, the one thing I'll tell students or others who are doing it is you have to make yourself vulnerable. You just got to put it all out there because that's where people are going to connect. And that's where you're really offering something of value to folks. Goodness knows there are lots of reasons to write a memoir, to render testimony, to bear witness, to make sense of a recollected life that had failed to make sense before, to turn to the mysteries of memory and improvise a continuous narrative of our own life and in that way substantiate ourselves to ourselves and others. St. Augustine told us, memory is a faculty of the soul. Writing a memoir about my parents, Parker and Edna Ford, didn't seem to be so much writing about myself as about them, although I was their only child and the only one remaining to say that they'd even existed. So here is another reason to write a memoir, to utter what must not be erased. It also brings value, I think, to yourself. If you allow yourself that vulnerability of being able to go deep and dissect that time or that feeling or that emotion, Your new book, The Society of Shame, is a novel. Tell us about it. Sure. The Society of Shame is a story of what happens when a politician's wife's feminine hygiene malfunction, in other words, period stain on the back of her pants, is captured in a photo that goes viral, vaulting her into the position of being the unwitting spokesperson for a new movement for menstrual rights and destigmatization called hashtag Yes We Bleed. And she's a retiring shy person by nature, always been in her senator hopeful husband's shadow, and suddenly she's thrust into the limelight and needs to figure out what the heck she's going to do if she's going to hide from her humiliation or if she's going to embrace it. And um, she intercepts an invitation meant for her husband, who, oh, I missed this part, who was cheating on her. This is part of what led to the whole viral photo incident. And it, to something, she's invited to something called the Society of Shame, where a canceled, I hate that word, best-selling author helps other folks who have been embroiled in scandals figure out how to move on with their lives. I want to ask, aside from clearly the obvious that the events of a novel are largely imagined while the events of a memoir are largely experienced, what's the difference in writing fiction versus memoir? It's a great question. You know, I think memoir is in a way a little bit easier because you have to work within things that actually happened. Even though you have to craft a story, you have to create a narrative and you have to make it interesting and build scenes and dialogue and all the rest. There's only so far you can go, right? You have guardrails. Whereas with a novel, the sky's the limit. You can come up with anything. 
So it's both more exciting in some ways, but it's also harder in some ways because there are so many more decisions to make. I find that exciting, but I also find it hard. (laughs) And maybe there are truths you can tell in fiction that might be harder to tell in a memoir or nonfiction. Yes, definitely. There's stuff I can sneak into the novel that maybe only I know is true or things I've been wanting to get out of my system or observations I have that maybe I want to cloak within someone else's point of view. So yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of truth in fiction for sure. And I want my listeners to understand that your book, I mean, it's pretty lighthearted, even though it deals with some pretty heavy things like just ingrained cultural misogyny and sometimes fickle and cruel nature of activism and online activism in particular. How do you navigate those waters, keeping something? I know it's a challenge for me. I just started writing screenplays. And for me, life is about, yeah, it's hard, but there's always humor in every situation, right? And I find it very hard to strike that balance in a script where I'm keeping something fun, funny, and engaging, but still having a message, but without that message being preachy or dark. Yeah, it's really hard because I knew when I started this book that I want it to be satirical and send up some of the things that you mentioned, send up activism, send up liberal infighting, send up the ridiculousness of media coverage and the 24-hour news cycle. But yeah, I also wanted to get at some very sincere issues. I wanted to get at the main character, Kathleen's real discovering of herself and her relationship with her daughter. So What I found was it was finding the moments, finding the moments where, okay, here's a place where I can add levity or add satire, add sort of witty commentary where it's not going to get in the way of the other stuff, giving enough space around the more serious moments. So I wasn't, you know, bookending them between jokes, really finding that right rhythm. But I will say there were also in the editorial process, working together with my agent and with my wonderful editor at Anchor. They were both fantastic at being like, Jane, you're making a little too light of something serious here. Let's tone it back. And then, but over here, this is a place where maybe you can lean into the humor a little more. And it really, it helps to have someone else to be that sounding board. And to find the balance as a reader rather than a writer, because I think that's the difference too. Because I know for me, as I'm writing scripts, oftentimes, like, I'll have to just get the scene out. And then I go back and I'm like, where's the funny in this? So you're not backing into the scene. You're writing the scene and then backing into the humor of the moment or the character humor. And I have to say, I find Kathleen as pretty relatable. And I wonder how you came to envision her and create her in the social media world that swirls around her in the novel. Sure. Yeah. I will say that I'm definitely a little more exhibitionist than Kathleen is. I'm okay with putting myself out there, but I certainly, when writing that character, was able to tap into, I think, a fear that maybe a lot of us have when we're online, we're so exposed and it feels like the entire world is looking at you. I never expected that this humiliating moment in my life would become a rallying cry. And I want to start giving back, helping the movement however I can. I realized that by not speaking out, I was in fact undercutting the whole point of Yes, We Bleed. Women, including me, have accepted the patriarchal narrative about our periods for too long. And women in their 40s, like me and older, have been hesitant to really own our menopause and celebrate it as a rite of passage, like any other. If you make one false move, oh my God, everyone's going to attack. 
So I felt like for her, I was able to get into that idea of that fear of scrutiny and that worry about what are other people thinking of me. And that's a real thread for her throughout too. And the worrying about how you're perceived by other people. And I think all of us can fall into getting caught up in that. What does everyone else think of me? What does everyone else think of me? Your old sort of middle school self comes back. You're a grown human being. And that often plays out, especially when you're in the spotlight and on social media. The scandal and controversy in the book, it just, it makes me want to ask you what it says about us as a culture that the scandal and controversy surrounding something as natural and normal as a visibly menstruating woman. (laughs) Why is that so believable? Part of the central joke is here is this viral photo, you know, this photograph that catches a man running for Senate with his pants literally down and this young staffer who he'd been having an affair with passed out drunk with her panties around her ankles. And yet what the public focuses on is, oh my gosh, she has a big stain on the back of her pants. So it is kind of incredible that periods are still so taboo. And it's changing. It's definitely changing. And I see that a lot, certainly with my kids who have very little shame or embarrassment around periods, even around like their dad, you know, they'll be like, hey, I have my period. It's just much more normal to them. But yeah, I learned a lot as I was writing this book and researching about many of the taboos around menstruation in other cultures, how women literally die because of the stigma around periods, because sometimes in some cultures, they're isolated during that period, put in huts or houses that are where they're vulnerable to smoke inhalation, where they're vulnerable to hypothermia. It becomes a life or death issue. There are countries where girls stay home, many countries where girls stay home from school, the times when they're on their period. So We have a really long way to go in our country and around the world at normalizing periods and the stuff that happens with periods, which is sometimes you get a stain on your pants. You gently take internet activism to task in your novel. It's a good and effective sort of parody of some of the toxicity that these movements can sometimes spawn. What do you think online activist culture should actually look like? That's a great question. You know, I'll first say, I think that online activism is really important. When I think about the power of Me Too, it's just incredible, transformative. And I think also the way that social media has allowed us to reveal the truths of racism and police brutality, like that cannot be underestimated. It's amazing. Where I think it becomes toxic is with the infighting, right? And these sort of the purity test of you have to be the most dedicated or you have to say the exact, you know, have the exact right opinion. Even people who are on the same side of an issue end up just taking shots at each other, falling over themselves to prove who's more morally pure. And then, of course, you get people fighting who are on opposite sides of the cause. I do get a sense sometimes now among certain young people, and this is accelerated by social media, there is this sense sometimes of, The way of me making change is to be as judgmental as possible about other people. And that's enough. Like if I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or used the word wrong verb or then I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself because man, you see how woke I was? I called you out. (laughs) Let me get on TV. (laughs) Watch my show. Watch Grownish. <laughs> um, you know, that's not 
that's not activism. That I don't know if is avoidable. It's really the infighting with people who are on the same side that I think becomes toxic. But it's hard not to get sucked into it and lose sight of what the real issue is that everyone's fighting for. Boy, do I know about that. There's a biological reason, right? If you're calling someone out, it's sending off the happy chemical in your brain that you're doing the right thing. And so we think that people should be called out because it's making us feel good. But it's making us feel good not because we're really changing a perspective, but because it's sending off things in our brain. But yeah, I totally get that. And I love the way in which you handle that in the book, I think is really striking. There's a scene also that I love, absolutely love. It's in an interview about the Yes, We Bleed movement at the heart of the novel. And the male host is interviewing a male doctor who he says, has spent his career dedicated to women's health. And a male syndicated columnist who makes the argument that men also bleed. And (laughs) it's just so absolutely spot on. And I'd love to know if there were specific real world incidents which inspired that scene. I think what really inspired it was just the general way that conversation around women's bodies ends up happening among men and how wrong that is. And obviously that the example of that little talk show scene is a huge exaggeration, but I wanted to shine light on the fact that why are men the ones dominating these conversations in the halls of Congress and the halls of state houses about women's bodies? I also definitely was inspired by the sort of I think one of the people in that scene ends up saying, quite simply, all blood matters. And that clearly is taking a jab at the sort of the response to Black Lives Matter that no, all lives matter. It's like, well, sometimes you can talk about one thing and not the other. And you can talk about women's blood and women's menstruation without also talking about men's health. It doesn't mean men's health doesn't matter. It means we're talking about this right now. Welcome to the Insight Hour with Jake Albright. I'm your host, Jake Albright. In recent days, the Yes, We Bleed movement has swept the globe in response to a recent photo of Senate hopeful Bill Held and his wife Kathleen. But many are asking, so what? Tonight, we hear perspectives on the issue from our guests, Dr. Thomas Gold, Chief of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Washington General Hospital and author of the recent memoir, A Life Between Legs, and syndicated columnist Boris Kassoff. Good evening, gentlemen. Dr. Gold, you've spent your career dedicated to women's health, What's your take on the Yes, We Bleed movement? Is it good for women? Thank you, Jake. In brief, no. My concern when it comes to this thing is that it may in fact be counterproductive. Look, let's be honest. Menstruation is a perfectly natural function of the female body. No more remarkable, arguably less remarkable, in fact, than other bodily functions. Whether you're talking about digestion, kidney function, or the intricate dance of the endocrine system. The fact that a rather mundane incident concerning Mrs. Held has ballooned into this collective hysteria over menstruation is bizarre, to say the least. A bit of a tampon in a teapot? Precisely. And all health doesn't matter if women's health doesn't matter. We've been doing this podcast for four years now, which is amazing, especially in this world of podcasting where, let's just say, we feel very blessed to still have a home and that people still listen to us. And I think you are the first novelist we've had come on to discuss their fiction in the four years, which is pretty incredible. And I wonder how you see the role of fiction as an agent of social change. 
I think fiction can play a huge role in social change because I think it's less scary to some people. It's that spoonful of sugar that helps medicine go down, right? You can be reading a novel and just get engrossed in a whole, in a story and engrossed in characters and not realize until it's, <laughs> until it's too late. Oh my gosh, I'm learning something here. And this is really forcing me to think about things in a new light. I also think what's great about fiction is that it allows nuance, right? It allows subtlety. It allows us to look at things from many different lenses and have empathy, even for people who are doing crappy things. Part of what I wanted to do in this book was humanize folks who do crappy stuff, right? There are some people in this book who do some pretty awful things. And yet I hope as a reader, people wouldn't think, oh, they're just a terrible person. It's black and white. They're horrible. It's so much more complicated than that. And I think Fiction allows us to get at that complexity and see that sometimes contradictory things exist, right? Someone can think really awful things and also be a kind, loving, you know, mother or wife or friend. And it doesn't mean that those awful things are any less awful. It's just, it is, right? And I like how fiction makes us wrestle with those facts and look at things from a more nuanced perspective. And I also think it's the danger of social media that it doesn't have that nuance. That everyone's looking for a soundbite, but there's no room for the gray areas and there's no room for the discussion or the contradiction or the push and pull or even the relatability. And I think that there's something very personal about reading where you're able to, and this is I think good storytelling in general, and maybe even the entertainment industry and film and TV, but the viewer or the reader is really able to take things into their body in a real physiological way where it's reaching them on a cellular level. And I think that things shift around and sometimes make us uncomfortable. And I think that's why you could watch a sad movie or a sad commercial and cry. It's because it's you're taking it in to your body. So it's, first of all, a lot less combative because it's not a back and forth. But also it's so vital in being a conversation starter, in having internal conversation, right? In, in that sense of, wow, I'm reading this and I should be conflicted about it, but honestly, I can relate to this feeling. And it becomes more personal. And I think that's one of the things I love about reading, but also one of the things that I love about writing is that idea that someone's ingesting the words into their body. And then what happens to them? What do they make of them next? Does it transpire into an emotion or an action? And I really do think that these are the dangers of social media because people are ingesting things into their body, but it's confirmation bias. It's everything that's in the silo. It's everything that's in the algorithm. So it's scary. I mean, how are you feeling about what's going on with our education right now and how books are being banished and works will never be read? It's horrible. And you know, it's just, it's so cowardly because it assumes that people and children in particular can't 
do exactly what we're talking about, right? Take things in and process them and think about them and maybe find some things that they can hook into and relate to and some things that they won't. And if anything, I feel like kids are better at that than we are. Yeah, right. They're more open-minded. You know, the power of books and of fiction in particular, I will say is you touched on this a bit, but it's the idea of empathy, right? We're learning to see when you read, you learn to see the world through lots of different lenses and you learn how to feel more deeply because you're being asked to do that. When you're given a character on the page, who's this imaginary presence, you're being asked, embody this person, try to understand their heart, try to understand their mind. And when you learn, you know, exercise those muscles while you're reading, you're going to exercise those muscles much more effectively in real life too. And when you're being forced to think and process new ideas within a book, you're going to be better at doing that in other situations, including on social media, right? Where someone, I mean, as toxic as social media can be, I also certainly feel like I learn from it, right? If I am being exposed to new voices or being sent down a rabbit hole of, articles or stories or information, you have to be someone who's open to taking those extra steps. Yeah, because do you think you learn about people who see the world differently than you do? Or do you think you're getting articles that the algorithm knows you would be interested in reading? The algorithm definitely serves things up and you have to go out of your way to find views that are different, which I try to do, but it can be exhausting. It's a lot of work and it really is terrible that the algorithms are so powerful in setting us to be in those echo chambers. A filter bubble is your own uh, personal universe of information that's been generated by um, algorithms that are trying to guess what you're interested in. And um, increasingly online, uh, we live in these bubbles. Um, they follow us around. They um, form part of the fabric of most websites that we visit. Um, and I think we're starting to see how they're um, creating some challenges for democracy. That's why we need books. We need diverse books. We need lots of different books. We need controversial books. Well, you have teenagers, so you will appreciate this. You know, both of my kids have Instagram accounts, not that they're allowed to look at. They do not look at their Instagram at all. I want to make that very clear to my listeners. But I got them Instagram accounts because I didn't want anyone else to take their names because I'm a celebrity. And so I started posting baseball videos of my son Milo and pictures of Bella and her friends. And then I realized I could hack their algorithms so that when they do get their Instagram accounts and I do turn them over to them, they're going to just see puppy videos <laughs> and, you know, people doing good things videos and like feel-good videos and why you should do your homework videos. So literally every day I spend about, I don't know, 10 minutes on both of their accounts separately. And I like things. I'm literally hacking their algorithm. That's awesome. They're very lucky you're doing that. Somewhere around 2021, I started trying to hack my own algorithm on Facebook because I just, yes, I'm old. I'm still on Facebook, but I like I just couldn't deal with all like the fire hose of political stuff and bad news. So I just stopped clicking like on it. And it was scary how quickly Facebook became a much kinder, gentler place. My biggest fear is what's going on with our young people and social media and the social contagion aspect of it and the Kylie Jenner complex of feeling that they're not good enough or have enough or all of that. It's hard when all their friends are on TikTok and 
doing their thing to say no. So I think it's about a balance. It's about you can watch YouTube, but you can't watch YouTube shorts because it's that flicking up and down that makes it interactive, that makes it like a slot machine, that makes it so addicting. What do you have in the works now? Do you think you'll stick with fiction? Do you think you're going to move back to memoir? That's a good question. I do think my next book will be a novel and I'm trying to sort of find my way into it, but I haven't quite found my way in yet. But I will continue. You know, I have a very active Substack, James Calamity, where I write a lot of essays and reflections, and I love doing that. And sometimes it's just outright silly stuff. So I will continue that. I do have a memoir I think I'll write down the road, but for now, I'm just having so much fun with fiction that I'm going to stick with that. But I do want to continue to work kind of contemporary issues into it because I, I just love processing and commenting on contemporary stuff through that fiction lens. And we need it. So thank you for doing it. There are a lot of great people doing it out there. Finally, what gives you hope? This is probably a very cliched answer, but it's my kids. I've got this awesome, like, artsy queer kid who is just brave and unabashed and unapologetic about who they are. And I'm really inspired by that. My daughter Cleo is an activist herself. She's really involved in environmental causes and she does theater and she just embraces life with such joy. And she's a reader. She's a big reader. So I love that. But when I see the way they're moving through life and the way their friends are moving through life and how informed and tuned in they are to what's happening in the world, that really gives me hope. Jane Roper, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much. This has been great. Been an honor and uh, really appreciate it. I'm going to share a story with you guys I've actually never shared publicly. First, I want to introduce you to the main character. This is 10-year-old Kate getting ready to start fifth grade, who had just moved to a new school, struggling to find confidence, but was definitely on her way there. Could you imagine starting your period for the first time in front of your entire fifth grade class at age 10? Well, that's exactly what happened to me. I was at recess, walking across the balance beam, feeling confident in my brand new khaki pants, when a group of boys came up behind me, snickering and laughing. They asked me, what's that big spot on the back of your pants? Did you have an accident? Instantly, shame, fear, and humiliation engulfed me. My face turned bright red and I had tears spring to my eyes. I jumped off the balance beam and ran to the bathroom as quickly as I could. When I sat in that bathroom stall and pulled down my pants, I realized it was filled with blood, something I had never seen or experienced before, and you can imagine my confusion and fear. Sitting in that bathroom stall, I did eventually figure out that I think I had started my period. But something shifted deep inside of me, and that was shame. Stories matter. Whether they are our personal lived experiences or fiction which reaches a truth through imagined lives, they are the things connecting us and helping us to understand one another. I've said it before on this podcast, and I will say it again and again, but nothing brings people together like our stories. Jane's done an amazing job of connecting to something deeper in our culture through the imagined lives of her characters. 
and we can all learn from it. We can all learn from the shame machine at the heart of social media. Good and bad, we can be better to each other for it. There's a space for accountability in this world. Help, there is a need for accountability. But we need to be sure we're aiming it in the right place. Jane's story of a woman who is shamed for visibly having a period while her powerful husband gets a pass for having an affair is something that could absolutely happen in this world. Most of the women I know could envision it happening to them. We as activists, as connected humans, need to tell our stories. But we also need to be sure that we're telling the right ones. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.